Well, good morning. Uh, once again, welcome uh, to First Baptist Watauga. Um, I'm not an intern uh, like, like Corey and, and Jen. Thanks for pointing that out, Corey. Uh, I was at one time, though, and I wear that proudly. Um, so be careful. Sometimes interns become pastors. Uh, and God might just put you somewhere. Uh, I'm Pastor Nathan. I'm our student pastor here at First Baptist Waitaga. I'm filling in for Dennis Hester, who is our senior pastor and who is on vacation. And so we can be praying for him together this week that he has a relaxing time and a renewing time. And then he comes back uh, ready to keep up the good work. Um, to tell you just a little bit about me, in case you don't know, uh, when I was a child, I grew up in a uh, very Christian home where the Bible was read uh, quite frequently, as well as comic books. Um, that's just the truth. Um, so you could, you could say if there was a fire in the house and I could only grab two things on my way out, it's entirely likely I would have left a burning building with a Bible in one hand and a comic book in the other. Um, and that just gives you really a lot of insight to, to how I grew up. Um, and because of that, uh, because scripture was read frequently in my house, I read in scripture at one point, and it stuck with me, uh, a verse from Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. Uh, furthermore, it was backed up by uh, something Jesus said in Matthew 19.26, all things are possible with God. Well, with those two scriptures in mind, I built a little theology and I set out to do the impossible because I wanted to be Spider-Man. Bible, one hand, comic book, and the other, I'm telling you. That was what I thought. With those two scriptures, I thought surely I could climb up the walls in our house. And as you can imagine, this led to a small crisis of faith uh, because that scripture failed me or so I thought because I could not climb up these walls. I thought maybe I, I didn't have enough faith. And so I, I prayed about this and I kid you not, this happened. We have a, my, my parents have a one story home because I thought I could be Spider-Man. Um, they did not want a two story home. So shortly after this small crisis of faith, I learned about this wonderful word, context. And it has become a very, very important word uh, to me as I read scripture nowadays. And it's a very important word for us to consider today uh, as we read a, a pretty challenging text before us. In fact, uh, if you're going to preach in a pulpit somewhere as a general rule of thumb, uh, I would recommend that you study and that you prepare as best as you can and you look at commentaries and the original languages. And so as I was doing all of that this week, the very first commentary uh, I opened uh, said this, this line at the very beginning of today's text. It said, uh, this is not only one of the most difficult passages in Peter's letter, it is one of the most difficult in the whole New Testament. I thought Dennis must have been giggling his whole way up to Yellowstone. That guy... Uh, as he left this text for me to preach this morning. But the reason it's so complicated is because we're, we're reading it, I'm trying to understand this, we're reading it 2,000 years later, okay? And so there's some context that's very, very important for us to remember because what we're gonna see today, we're gonna see a passage where some things stick out at us and we're like, wait, wait, what did he just say? And we're gonna wanna explore that. Uh, and we will, we'll, we'll look at it. But I want us to get past some of that. It's kind of like when you're walking on a beach and you see something shiny. It could be gold or it could be a candy wrapper, okay? But it's shiny and it catches our attention. And sometimes when we look at scripture, we'll see shiny things like that. That wasn't necessarily something that stuck out to the original readers of the text, okay? And it's not necessarily what Peter intended as the main point either. So our task today, we'll deal with some of the shiny stuff, but we're going to get to the main point too. 
We're going to try to understand what exactly Peter is getting at as he writes this. And let me just define the word context for you because it's helpful. Context is the circumstances or the words or phrases uh, that surround a text, right? So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3 today, verses 18 through 22. What's going to be important for us is to know what comes before that and to know what comes after that and to know what the world looked like when Peter was writing this. That's the context of the passage that we're going to try to really get a good handle on today as we work our way through so that we don't get too distracted, too bogged down in some of the shiny, interesting stuff that he says. And it's interesting stuff. Um, We've been working through this series, though, in 1 Peter, if you're new with us, where we've explored uh, a letter written by the church's very first pastor. Uh, Way back when uh, the church started in Jerusalem, uh, Peter is who we kind of regard as that first pastor, right? Uh, And and we learn what we can from him. Uh, Peter is a fisherman turned shepherd, uh, a a Christ-following apostle. Um, And so we're going to take a look at what he has to say, but I want you to know that he's writing to Gentile believers. Now, when I say the word Gentile, what I mean is anyone who's not Jewish, okay? That's probably most of us in this room, right? And so he's writing to people who uh, were not Israelites in the traditional sense. They didn't uh, grow up reading the Torah. They didn't, what we call the Old Testament, they didn't grow up reading that, memorizing it, studying it as Jewish believers had done before Christ. They were Gentiles. And so a Gentile believer, uh, but he's also writing to Gentile believers who are being persecuted by the Roman culture. Now, when I say persecuted, I do not mean they were being made fun of at work for their beliefs in Jesus, okay? I mean, they were on the cusp of a very important uh, uh, Christian historical uh, persecution by the Roman Empire. We think this was written in about AD 64 or 65. Like I said, that was a long time ago. Uh, It was written likely somewhere in there or shortly before or after those dates, which puts it right before or right after or on the cusp of this great big persecution that that began with the, the Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire who begins just rounding up Christians left and right and killing them. Those Christians, right, were the Christians in that time period, knowing Christians who were being rounded up and killed. That's the people that Peter's writing to. Remember that this morning. That's very important. Those are the people that Peter's writing to because when he's talking about suffering, especially in last week's text, he talked a lot about how we can endure suffering on account of Jesus. He's talking to people who are at the very least beginning to feel that pressure. They get it. They understand what suffering is. And so last week we talked about suffering. We talked about why Christians can endure suffering and to, again, fill you in that that summary statement that that we we basically learned last week was that we can endure suffering uh, as Christians because of the hope we have in Jesus. Okay, because of the hope we have in Jesus. And so why can we endure it? Because of Jesus and this week's text we're going to see Peter talk a little bit about what it is that Jesus has done so that that's actually a reality, so that we can actually endure suffering. What is this thing Jesus has done? Because he's just saying because of Jesus, why? And so we're going to explore that this morning and help us to understand what makes it so that we can endure suffering. Now, let me make just one little note before we begin this morning in our text, uh, because I want to point out two problem areas in our text this morning uh, that may have caught your attention. They certainly caught Dennis's attention on his way out. He talked about it last week, literally on his way out the door uh, before he left for vacation. Uh, they were certainly, they caught my attention. I read through the passage. These are the first two things I noticed. And I was like, how do I preach that? I don't, how, what? 
what, what, Lord? You know, and, and so they're the things that might catch your attention, um, but they also have the ability, like I mentioned before, to distract us from the main point. And so we're gonna walk through it together. Uh, those two things are this, this phrase about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, all right? You're gonna read that and you're probably gonna at the least be a little bit confused, if not a little bit curious, okay? The other phrase is that uh, this phrase about baptism now saving you. And every good Baptist in the room is gonna shudder. What did he say? It's okay, we'll walk through it together uh, and we'll, we'll address those two things. But then we're gonna move to Peter's main point, okay? And I want purposely to prepare you for that, that those two things are not actually Peter's main point. And we'll, we'll deal with all of them and learn what we can and then move to Peter's main point. So our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Um, so allow me to read it for us. It's a, a short text, uh, but certainly full, like I said, full of some interesting things. Uh, so read it with me if you have your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. It says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. All right, hopefully you see what I mean now when I say it's an interesting text. Um, so let's dive into the first thing that catches our attention because this is a room full of good Baptists, right? We don't actually uh, believe in Baptist doctrine that that baptism in and of itself saves you. And when I say baptism, I'm talking about when we put someone up in that room right there and we turn the light on and we put a bunch of water in it and the water may be warm and it may be cold and then we dunk you under it, right? That's what I'm talking about. So the important piece of context to remember in this passage is the audience. Peter is, is trying to help his audience who are Gentiles relate to the ancient Israelites whom they did not descend directly from. They didn't grow up hearing those stories. You, you might, if you've not grown up in church and then you show up to church one day and the pastor's talking about this weird thing, baptism and this weird thing, spirit from prison, you might be completely confused, right? He's writing to people who don't necessarily have a great grasp on that history. And so he's trying to tell them about Noah. Now, Noah, we might have learned if we grew up in Sunday school, Noah's Ark, where uh, the world was entirely evil and everyone in it was awful except for Noah. And so God's like, Noah, I want you to build me a boat. I'm gonna flood the earth. You get your family on that boat. I'll let you live. That was the deal. And so we see that occur. Now, if you hear that story and you think Noah was saved by the water, was he saved by the water? No. Right? If anything, he was saved by the boat, right? But in reality, he was saved by God who used a boat and he saved him through water. The water was death. He needed to be on the boat. Think back to Exodus, right? This is more ancient Israelite history here. In Exodus, people, uh, God's people are, are led by Moses out of Egypt. And, and as he's led, at, in fact, we were just reading scripture about it earlier. Corey and I did not consult about that. That was awesome. But the people are being led out of Egypt into the desert. And then what happens? Moses gets up and the Red Sea's parted, right? We've heard that story. And they walk through it. Did the water save those people? 
No. In fact, again, it was the lack of water. The water was death. God saved those people by moving the water back. And again, the water meant death because when the Egyptians tried to come through, God let the water kill them, right? And so that's what we see is that God's at the work. So when someone today becomes a Christian, are they saved by the water? No, right? The water, they are saved by Christ and the baptism which symbolizes that salvation causes them to go through the water. That continuously is a symbol. He was trying to point out, Peter's trying to point out that God has a tendency to use water like this in a very symbolic way. We see lots of these kind of baptismal uh, imagery uh, appear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and that's why we do it today because it represents salvation. Think about it this way. If I filled that tub up and I took you up there and I were to baptize you this morning and I say buried with Christ in baptism. <laughs> if you don't come back up, what's gonna happen? It's not a baptism, it's a drowning, right? And a public one, I'm going to jail, right? That's a bad day. The water is death. The symbolism is that we are saved through the water. We are raised to new life. He's trying to get them to understand the commonalities between their people now, the Christian now, and the ancient Israelites then. That's what makes this part so cool. He's not saying in all that the water saves them. Jesus saves them. That's why he mentions uh, to uh, he mentions through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other thing he mentions is this phrase, pledge of a good conscience. Now, I don't really like the translation pledge there because when we think pledge, we think I pledge allegiance to the flag, right? And so we're thinking of a kind of um, creedal assent, if you will. Like I'm pledging allegiance to something, but the word in the Greek really has more to do with the word uh, request. Some of your Bibles might use the word appeal. That, that makes sense because you're kind of, requesting salvation, if you will. It's been offered to you and we're coming and we're requesting it. That kind of leads to a pledge, right? A commitment to the Lord. But certainly none of us are saved because we say to the Lord, I commit to you, I pledge to you and therefore I'm saved because that's something we do, right? And it's not we who save us, it's Jesus who saves us. And so baptism, what Peter's saying here is that baptism insofar as it represents the spiritual reality within you that you've requested salvation from the God who saves, saves you. So a baptism that doesn't accurately reflect that, a baptism that doesn't reflect a real genuine relationship with Christ is a facade. It's a lie. It's a deception. It's not a baptism. It's going swimming. It's not a baptism. Baptism must reflect a genuine salvation. And the Gentile believers had an understanding of that, right? And so we read it nowadays, we, we like to separate baptism, the action from what it represents. Back then it was, it was you're saved and we get you baptized. It, it was, what's to stop me? There's water right here, let's do it, I believe. And we baptize. Nowadays we're a little more structured, right? We like to schedule them. We, we like to go, uh, next Sunday work for you? Well, there's a Cowboys game. How about the next Sunday? The, the game's in the evening, I can do it then, right? And so we we've lost that sense of immediacy to it. We've tried to separate the two, but it wasn't always that way. So baptism has always though reflected a genuine salvation choice. Now let's hit that other weird phrase in verse 19, the spirits in prison, the proclamation made to them. Now this is, is again, this is challenging for us because 
we might think it's saying one thing, we might think it's saying another. I turn to, to a good research, hopeful and, and trusting that the commentators out there, the scholars of the New Testament would help me out and give me some answers. They gave me way too many answers. Uh, as it turns out, Christians don't agree on this passage. Can you believe it? A bunch of Christians disagreeing with each other. Never happens. So there's, there's at least five major ways, uh, basically, if you dumb it down, about five major ways that Christians can interpret this. And I am not about to tell you all of them uh, because this is not a lecture on uh, this, this one phrase. But I'll, I'll give you two major ways that kind of uh, have a tendency to, to move into one of the two and a variation of them. The, the idea is that perhaps what he's referring to, uh, which by the way, this is made more complicated by chapter four, uh, verse six, when he says that the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead could mean a number of different things, okay? His audience likely knew we jumped to conclusions that we don't know, but that's Dennis's text. We'll let him handle that. Um, <laughs> praise God. Uh, but let me give you the, the two ways that we can kind of look at this, right? A, Christ, when he died, went to the land of the dead. In the Hebrew, that's Sheol. In the Greek, that's Hades. It's not necessarily hell as we think of it, as the like the place for punishment for sins. It's not necessarily what Peter's in, intending here. Most people don't think that, but guess what? There's some Christians who think that. That's okay. Uh, and the idea is that he went to the land of the dead and preached the gospel to those who died before they knew him. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, hey, you know, Jesus came around, but what about all of those Israelites, right? What about David? What about Abraham? Any of those, they was before Jesus. They didn't profess faith in Jesus, did they? Right, we've wondered about that. One answer to that question that people have tried to do is this, that Jesus died, went down to the place of the dead and started making introductions. Hi, I'm Jesus, I'm your Lord. You know, And then they were saved. That's one thought. The other thought, because that, that's a literal thought, the other thought is a metaphorical thought, that Christ kind of metaphorically went to the land of the, the dead or hell as a complete and utter death and and. Uh, penalty of sin being taken on him, right? And so those are the two kind of ways that we, we look at it. Well, if you'd like, I've got a stack of commentaries that you can go look through uh, to study that further if you'd like. But what I want to do is point out this morning the common ground between all of them, right? What we can actually learn is, is what I believe is truth from all of those ideas. And what we should take from it is that they all mostly agree on this. Not even death can keep us from the grace of Christ. We learn that from the empty tomb though, don't we? That death is not the end for a Christian. See, to the Gentile believers, Peter was writing the ones who were on the cusp of the world's most devastating persecution of Christians ever. That's good news. It's really good news to know that not even death will keep us from Jesus. That's a good truth to take away from this difficult, challenging passage is that not even death can keep us from Jesus. When Jesus wants to save you, he is going to save you, right? He's not gonna let uh, death prevent that. He's the death around you, the death of yourself. In fact, I won't share any names, but I heard this wonderful, wonderful testimony of, of the Lord's work uh, from, from a guy earlier this week. And he, he talked about how before he, he knew Jesus, he simply, he wanted, all right, hear me out. He, he wanted to die and made efforts to do so. And then he woke up the next day. Why? Because 
God said no, right? See, the truth is our God is more powerful than death. Jesus is more powerful than death. And that's good news, especially to a bunch of Christians who are looking death in the eye, like the Gentile believers who are or hearing this for the first time were. So those are the two shiny things, all right? And I think we can delve some good truth from them, but let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the important, what I believe is the, the main point of this passage. Um, you know, a contextual reminder, Peter's writing to people who are suffering, right? He's writing to people and he's telling them to endure suffering because of uh, Jesus. In fact, when I look at this passage and its context, an important word that we're learning today, right? It, they, there's this weird kind of trifecta that, that appears. We, we have this beforehand, right, where he's telling us, endure suffering. You can endure suffering because of Jesus. This week, we see what it is that Jesus did that makes us able to endure suffering. And then next week, it kind of leads to more application in next week's passage, right? So Peter's writing to these people who are suffering. They have to look to Jesus. Why? The key to understanding this is actually in verse 18, the very first verse we read. In fact, when I was preparing this text, I read verse 18 and I thought, I wish Dennis had assigned just that verse. That would have been much easier than trying to handle all the, the strangeness. But listen to this verse again. Verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Amen. We learned several things in this verse, which is a clear reminder to those who are believers already. In fact, to those who have never heard the gospel, this is just kind of amazing. It's marvelous. It's so interesting. And to those who are already believe, it is of our greatest comfort and our greatest encouragement. We learn this. We learn one, that Christ suffered and died for our sins. Christ suffered for our sins. Why is that important? Because it's encouraging to the believers who are suffering to know that Jesus suffered first makes it easier. It makes it easier to know that Jesus suffered first, that he knows how suffering feels. To know that he doesn't allow his people to suffer alone, no matter how alone they feel in that suffering. But that's the truth about Jesus, is that he's, he's not a God who stayed on his throne. He was a God that came to us and suffered for us. And so when we endure suffering, we have someone like Jesus as an example, right? The, the beautiful thing about uh, the suffering of Jesus is that he did it first and that he does it with us, right? That's why we see in John chapter 11, when uh, his friend Lazarus dies and his, his friends who are related to him are all upset about it, Jesus weeps. Why? Because he suffers alongside of us, right? He hurts when we hurt. It's not that he looks at us with a cold look in his eye while we hurt. He has compassion for us. He feels that suffering. And so he knows how suffering feels, he suffered first and he suffered for sins. Now, sins are what separate us from God. So sometimes we use that word a lot. We use it a lot in culture, actually. And basically our most fundamental understanding is those bad things, the bad things, right? And then we debate and argue what the sins are and what they do to us. But sins are more fundamentally, specifically what separate us from God, right? They're what separate us from God, the God who created us for a purpose and a relationship with him. Let me give you an example. When we're born, day one, when we're born, before we are anything else, by definition, we are somebody's child. That's the way it works. 
the first thing we are before we are doctors or teachers or pastors or interns, the first thing we are, are children, somebody's child. Now, a lot of things can go wrong, can't they? And a lot of things begin to go wrong and break those fundamental relationships, right? Look at the world and you'll see there's tons of broken families and it starts with that, that fundamental relationship being broken. That's what happened to us. That's what happened. God created people to be nothing more than his children. And then sin enters the world and it breaks that relationship. It just shatters it. So Jesus suffers for sins to restore that relationship. Christ died to restore that. And he did it once for all. That's the, the other thing we learned is that Christ died once for all so that all sin past and future would be dealt with. In the Hebrew culture, it was we offer a sacrifice to cover up for our sins. Lord, the Lord will forgive us if we offer a sacrifice and, and all those poor animals, right? <laughs> we, we offer them up, they die, we're covering our sins until next week when I screw up again and then I've got to bring another sacrifice, right? Jesus is that sacrifice once and for all. That's why we don't continuously like have to have Jesus come back, stick around, we kill him again on Easter and then we bring him back. You know, it's, it was once for all. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this in verse 11 through 14 it says, Talking about Jesus, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Christ doesn't have to keep dying for your sin. No one has to keep dying for your sin. It was enough. And then it says the righteous for the unrighteous. See, the thing about Jesus is he was righteous. He is perfect, perfect in every way. And when he lived his human life, it's easy for us to, to think that and then forget how difficult that actually would have been. Because when we are tempted by sin, what we like to think to ourselves is, well, Jesus, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't be in this situation because, you know, he's all powerful and he knew not to sin and he knew what to do. And Jesus was tempted every way. We see that in Hebrews chapter four. He's tempted in every way. And again, we think in our 21st century world, no, Jesus didn't have to face what we face. Well, I hate to break it to you. All sins and temptations boil down to the kind of same fundamental, you know, seven or eight rough sins and temptations, right? And he faced all of them, right? He would have faced the, the desire for instant self-gratification, for, for lust. He, when he's in the wilderness, right? He wanted to eat, but he wasn't supposed to at the time because he had committed that time to the Lord. He would have been tempted in all those ways. We see three different ways that the devil tempted him in the wilderness, right? Jesus was in fact tempted and yet he never sinned. He was perfect. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice. And yet we're sinful. We see that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. We see that in Romans 3, 23, but hopefully you can just look at the world and see that, right? Surely we can agree on that. I mean, the truth is very few of us would wager to say that we're perfect. Now, many of us will say that we're basically good, all right? I'm basically a good guy. I do the right thing more than the wrong thing. I'm faithful to my wife. I take care of my children, you know, but, but very few of us are gonna wager that we're perfect. And that's because there's a fundamental reality there. We're not. And even one sin is enough to separate us from God. So your, your good person status is not enough to restore that relationship with God. All sin has to be removed. All of it has to be sacrificed on 
all sin was removed because the one who sacrificed himself to pay for that sin was perfect. And why would he do such a thing? The passage in verse 18 says, to bring you to God. Remember that fundamental relationship we started with that was broken, to bring you to God. So why did Christ suffer and die to bring us to God, to restore it? And have you ever stopped to actually consider that? Like consider that personal relationship you're meant to have with God. And you can actually have one now because some guy you never knew died for you. That's pretty interesting. There's a lot of religions out there, a ton who will tell you the things that you can do to be acceptable before God, to do uh, good enough things, to basically work your way there to be good enough before God. Jesus is the only one who offers to take you there for free. He's the only one who offers to just bring you to God instead of you trying to get to him. Uh, there's this wonderful song, I, I just love it, uh, by a group I really like called the Gray Havens. The song is called Train Station. And what it does is it's, it's a metaphor. It's all one big allegory. And it speaks about all of these trains that people are charging for people to escape from something on, right? They, they just want to escape. And so uh, they're offering these train tickets. And there's one conductor who's offering something different. Let me just read you the, the chorus. It says this, some of the trains, right? Some were steel, some were gold. Each conductor raved. They shouted, buy your tickets, save your souls. But one conductor saying, he shouted, you come follow me. I'll buy your tickets and I'll pay your fees because I know what you cost. Believe me, without this train, you will be lost. And in the song, as it goes on, it causes this big scandal because people are like, is this guy really offering train services for free? That's ridiculous. We can't trust that. We can't trust that he's actually gonna take you anywhere good. But that's the deal, right? So we lay down our tickets. We stop trying to pay for the train and we just say, Lord, I'm gonna trust that this train's going somewhere I wanna go. And I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna get on the train because he can save us for free. And then this last phrase is, he was put to death, but made alive. Jesus, after suffering on the cross, died and Peter tries to make clear in this passage that it was a complete death. There was no um, kind of death. There was no, he's in a coma for a couple of days. It's not that he almost died or was mostly dead. He was dead. Jesus really died. And that's what Peter's trying to get at. He was dead, but then he breathed again. He was made alive again. And again, have we thought about what that means? If Jesus doesn't stay dead, neither do we. If, if Jesus actually has victory over death and he proves it with the empty tomb, with the resurrection, if he actually walks out of that grave, that is proof that he has the power to keep us from death forever. All that's left to do is trust that he will, the trust that he will in fact do so, that he will in fact keep his promise. All that's left to do is to follow Jesus. So the, one of the main points of this whole passage is that Jesus suffered, he died, and he was resurrected. Have you heard that before? It's the main point of a lot of scripture. Jesus suffered, he died, and was resurrected. And when you stop and you look at this whole passage, then all four verses and the stuff before and after, you can see how he's mentioned the gospel and how Jesus is present in all these places, right? Notice that, that he was present all that. He mentions those who are dead, right? And that Jesus is somehow weirdly there. What's going on? I don't know. But 
but his gospel made it there. And then he ascends into heaven. We have this wonderful line, angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. All of it's up to him. He's in charge, right? And so we see this image where spatially, right? We don't necessarily nowadays view hell and earth and heaven in spatial terms, but we've traditionally used those kinds of terms, right? And he paints the whole picture for us. Jesus is everywhere. Nothing can stop him, right? He's, he's over it all. And so what we find is that nothing can keep us from him. His grace that he offers us, it's unstoppable. My, uh, my Calvinist friends in the room will want to replace that word with irresistible, uh, and that's okay. Uh, because you know, while it's not the word I would want to use here, I think it gets the, the heart of the matter, which is the part that we really, really agree on, right, as Christians, that the heart of the matter is that when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing can keep us from him. Nothing, nothing can keep us from him. Nobody can mess with our salvation. No amount of sin can keep Jesus from saving us. We accept that relationship with him, that's it. He leaves it all up to us. And again, to a bunch of Christians who are looking death square in the eye, that's very good news. We lose sight of that when we don't look death square in the eye. But we should sometimes. We should regain that sight of that to understand that the gospel is really that thing that we need to cling to and hold on to. And so here's the thing. When we take a step back and we uh, take a look at the passage again, we can know Peter is saying, endure suffering because of Jesus. Why? Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what Jesus offered us, because he rose again and he conquered death, heaven, and everything else. He conquered it all. When we say Jesus is king or Jesus is victorious, we don't mean something small or, or inconsequential. We mean he conquered all of it. He is victory over all of it. His victory over uh, anxiety is one of the things I was thinking about earlier this week. And I don't mean that I was filled with anxiety over the text, although in some ways I was, uh, but, but I don't mean the real anxiety, right? The stuff that people really struggle with, right? The, the kind of depressing stuff that we struggle with. But I heard, uh, again, a, a testimony earlier this week that was just great man suffers with uh, anxiety and he comes to know Jesus. And he said this to me, he said, the anxiety wasn't gone, but it just didn't matter anymore. It just didn't matter anymore. Why? Because Jesus suffered, died and rose again. And so I wanna ask you a, a question. And this is that, that part of the sermon. I'll invite Corey back up here and we'll, we'll sing another song and I'll stand up here and maybe someone will come up here and pray with Nathan. Maybe somebody won't. And then we'll go home and we'll go watch a football game. That's great. But I really want you to hear this question that I'm gonna ask you. And I really want you to wrestle with the question this morning. You've heard the good news as bad as clearly as I think I can communicate it, that wonderful gospel message. And I wanna ask you, have you been saved by that good news? If you wanna endure suffering, you must make a choice. And it was offered to me, and I'm here today to tell you about the one who offers it to you still. It's this choice to confess that we are in fact sinners and believe in Christ to take away that sin and follow him, that we might be resurrected again. But here's the thing, you actually have to make a choice. I've noticed something that sometimes uh, what we think is that when you hear it, we think, oh yeah, I believe that and that makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. Uh, you're not a Christian for understanding it and you're not a Christian because your family believes in it or because you were raised in church. You're not a Christian because we took you up in that room and dunked you under some water. None of those things do it. Uh, 
to give you just a brief example, um, when I be- began dating Kirsten, who's my wife, when I began dating her several years ago, uh, we came to a point in our relationship where I, I had to have what oftentimes the younger people in the room will have heard this phrase a thousand times, DTR, a define the relationship talk, right? That's that awkward conversation that we have to define where we're at. Are we, are we in a relationship? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? How does this work, right? And you actually have to have that conversation in some way, shape or form. You have to ask the question, will you be my girlfriend? Something, right? Because what would be ridiculous is if I thought to myself, you know what, I really like her and I believe she likes me, I'm convinced of it. So I just walk around telling people that we're in a relationship, right? That'd be kind of ridiculous. I don't think the state of Texas was even acknowledged it for, for a long time. If I just walked around telling people, yeah, I'm married to her, but I never got down on one knee and asked her to marry me, right? That would be ridiculous. She'd be like, we're married? What are you talking about? You haven't done it. Why well, haven't had a wedding? You know, there's, there's a choice of commitment. We actually have to do that with Jesus. Just like you can't be in a relationship with anybody without actually committing to that relationship, without having that moment, you can't have a committed relationship to Jesus without talking to him, without telling him as much, saying, Lord, I want to be in a relationship with you. When I asked my wife to marry me, I was like 99% confident she'd say yes, right? When I asked Jesus to save me, I was 100% confident that he'd say yes. I'm 100% confident that if you asked him today, he'd save you. And I, I really, my, my job here is a joke about the complications of the text or whatever. My job here is to get up in this pulpit, to tell you the gospel, to tell you about this choice and pray and hope that you make a commitment to it. But I want you to know that if you haven't actually made that commitment, you haven't done anything yet. You're not a Christian, you're not saved, right? It, it won't be easy for you to endure suffering. It won't be possible for you to endure suffering. So I want you to know that this morning. I want to tell you that I want you to stop flirting with Jesus and actually make a decision on whether or not to follow him. And so if you want to make that decision today, I'm going to be down front. And here's what I want you to do. If you need to make that choice, I would encourage you to slip out of your seat and come down and visit with me for a minute, right? And we can talk for just a moment and I'll, I'll help walk you through it. You know, uh, sometimes it's, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And when I have that conversation, we don't really know what to pray or how to pray. I'm here to help you. I will, I'm not gonna do it for you, but I'll help you, right? To know what to say to the Lord. But you don't need me. You can do it where you're sitting. And I want you to know that if you uh, make a decision in your seats while we're, while we're in this last song, I want you to know this. I'd encourage you to slip out of your seat and come and tell me about it, right? Because another lie that we like to believe, Christians, another lie we like to believe is that we can have a personal private relationship with Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus that is never private. It, it can't be, it's public. It's why baptism and salvation, that they get intermixed, right? Because of the things that we read in scripture, because they viewed them as such. They viewed a personal relationship with Jesus as always public. And so those are my, my two choices to offer to you this morning is to do one of those two. So stand with me, I'm gonna pray for us. And then you respond in whichever way the Lord is calling you to respond this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And even though it can be confusing to us at times, Lord, we are grateful that when we trust you and we look for you, that you are faithful to reveal yourself. And here you are again, Lord, showing us your good story, your gospel, your offer of salvation. And Lord, I pray that uh, today as it's been offered and presented, that it would just simply be accepted, Lord, that somebody here today would be willing to drop their 
tickets, the things that they think will get them into heaven, Lord, the things that they think will bring them back to a restored relationship with you, Lord. And I just pray that they would drop it all and simply trust you and simply follow you and enter a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd make that so and that you'd save someone here today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise. Thank you.